0: Right. We have Dr. Sid Martinez here on slow motion with Bishop Bowser. And uh, Dr. Martinez is an associate professor at USD. He's in sociology. And um, I just want to give you a little background on Dr. Martinez to let you know that he is the expert and he can speak on this subject. Uh, we're going to be talking about policing today and uh, we're going to get real deep into it. So, um, uh, the, uh, uh, Sid Martinez is author of the book Neighborhood has its own rules, Latinos and African Americans in South Los Angeles. It was published by the New York University Press. So go out and get that book. Also, the book moves beyond traditional black and white paradigms of urban poverty and violence and introduces a new conceptual framework of understanding how Latinos have transformed the black ghettos based on in-depth ethnography, if I'm saying that right, Uh, 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 Martinez introduces the concept of alternative governance to understand how uh, the coexistence of black and brown urban poverty in South Los Angeles shapes how residents respond to some of the most violent neighborhoods in America. The book illustrates some of the most violent neighborhoods in America. The book illustrates how interracial relations between Latinos and blacks, policing, religion, gangs, and local municipal governments shape the way of violence. He's also working on a a, a new book, his newest book manuscript, I should say, tentatively entitled Cops and Clergy, Legitimacy, Trust, and Violence Reduction builds on previous research by exploring how perceived legitimacy of local clergy can be leveraged by law enforcement to reduce violence. I'm gonna skip on down here and share with you some of his uh, areas of expertise. Uh, His er areas of expertise is in urban poverty, Policing, which we'll be talking about today in California, community police, uh, policing programs, gun violence in California, gang intervention, violence reduction and trust building. Uh, his scholarly work is uh, Martinez research focuses on urban politics, policing, gun violence, criminology, religion, immigration, social theory and interracial relations with an emphasis on Latinos and African Americans. And, and so you know, uh, Dr. Martinez, I've known him for, for some years now. We, we go way back uh, uh, since he came to San Diego. I, I think I bet you right when you came back, came to San Diego. But uh, uh, Dr. Martinez, uh, you know, he's he's really knee-deep into research and study, and especially when we're looking at the the violence, gun violence, looking at gangs and looking at policing. And, and um, I've had opportunity to go to some of his classes and and speak to his students and so on, so I really appreciate that allow me to do that and so you know the the thing that um i recognize and understand here when we when we talk about um what we're trying to deal with here in in policing i know that you understand this you know i mean you've been teaching on you've been talking about it with the george floyd situation and with um dealing with um uh, brianna taylor and of course all the shootings and killing police killings has gone the go way back you know and and we go back far as uh you know alfred alongo And moving on up with issues that we're dealing with right here in San Diego. And I know sometimes, you know, with the work that you do, especially when you're doing your research, you know, getting information from the DA's office and some of the police departments and things like that, you have to tread lightly in what you say to do because you want to be neutral so you can, you know, gather that information and present it to us. And I I really appreciate the report that you did. You did uh, issue a report on gun violence and connected with gangs and things like that. I thought that that was an excellent report. And and really getting a a grip and understanding on where guns were coming from, so I appreciate that. And so today we want to talk about uh, policing. You know, as you a lot of people talking about you know reforming this uh, criminal justice system, policing as far as um, defund the police. Big debate about that. Um, um, Of course, you know most Americans don't understand. What that means, so even blacks, you know, the, there's a high percentage of folks that say no, we don't want the police to, to be because they thinking there be no more police, and and so people don't really understand that concept of defunding the police. But you know that a big debate started with that, and looking at how we can change policing. But I think a lot of times people don't really understand. Uh, the history of policing, you know, we, 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 you know, we get it from, Oh, they were the slave patrols. And that's pretty much as far as most people go when we talk about um, policing and so on. So I, I want, uh, I, I want Dr. Uh, Sid Martinez to really break it down, but, but uh, thank you, Dr. Martinez for being on, on uh slow motion with Bishop Bows and also live streaming on Facebook. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, one of the first things I wanted to ask you was is that if you could give us a history on policing and how it connects with modern day policing, because a lot of times people don't really understand the history of policing.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's a it's a it's a history uh, that goes way back, and um, it does have its origins uh, in slave patrols. Uh, but I would suggest, uh, you know, we also have to look at uh, the formal policing system that developed, uh, in New York. It's really in New York where we get the first formal, uh, police, uh, in, in America, Mm -hmm. but let's back up, let's back up a little bit. Uh, there was a system known as the watchman system that existed in the South and, uh, in the North, uh, I'm talking about Southern South, uh, slavery South, just to be clear. And, you know, that system um, was based on terror and intimidation. Uh, As uh, Khalid Muhammad, the uh, historian, uh, has noted, you know, no person would be willing to freely give up their labor uh, without some force. And so that's what people have to remember, that, that this watchman system in the South was based on terror. It was based on violence to make sure uh that slaves who uh didn't abide by the rules were punished and it was also meant uh, to make sure that runaway slaves uh were were brought back uh as well so that that's that's in the south that's a watchman system but that's not really the first formal policing system that we have in america Uh Uh, as i mentioned earlier the the first police uh emerged in new york city Around 18, uh, the late 1840s, uh, what happened is that uh, America was becoming very urban at this time. This is when America starts to really take off, and uh, as, as an urban place, due to industrialization and due to immigration, which provided the labor. Right. So what you what you had in in places like New York is a lot of disorderly conduct. You've got families that are moving from the country; uh, they don't really have a place. Uh, you know, for permanent housing, there was no running water. Uh, you know, there was no uh, sewage. Right, they didn't have any garbage collection. Wow! So there was a lot of a uh, lot of disorder that disrupted the city. Uh huh. And so New York, at the same time, it's, it's the center of industrialization because of urbanization, and they wanted to get that under control. Uh, so they looked to a model uh, that was developed in England. Uh, by and this was probably like in the 1830s uh, 1840s uh, a guy by the name of Robert Peel-huh and the the English came up with the model because they had uh, taken over Ireland and with a military and they could not subdue the Irish. Wow uh, the Irish were very tough, stubborn people they were very <laughs> uh, resilient and so the the British developed uh, the police they, they developed this new, entity Mm uh and and what they told the irish is they said we're not here to to conquer you or to use violence again here we're here this is the the key phrase to provide peace and order so this was going to be organization that wasn't necessarily there to conquer people although it's important to note that that's the origins of Modern policing in the world. Right. right? So people have to remember that when the English developed this, this was a model intended for the colonial control of the Irish. So that model gets transported uh, to New York. That watchman system was no longer sufficient. That was the system they had in the South and the North. And the watchman system wasn't sufficient because it wasn't very organized uh, and it didn't uh, go after. after uh, pre- it didn't try to prevent crime, what it did is it went and it apprehended people who were wanted for crimes. There was, was sort of like uh, the judge would would issue a warrant, and then they would go out and find these people. Okay. And they try to provide some some perfection of the town. So it wasn't very organized. It wasn't very efficient. And so this is why New York City develops this model of policing uh, from England. Uh huh. Now a lot of a lot of people they want to know well what was the fun. So you see, you've got two things going on here. In the south you, and in the north, you had this watchman system. Uh, and so once you get this system in New York City, then it finds its way down into the south. Remember, the south is not urbanized because right. of slavery, mm-hmm. right? It's a, still a very, uh, kind of rural, uh, agricultural based economy. Mm-hmm. And so, did they already um, have the slave patrols? Yeah, well, why would they want to urbanize? They have a slave system, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, it was not until later on, uh, you know, later in the in the nineteenth century, that they uh, adopt the, the police system that was developed in New York. And what's important mm-hmm. to note, and this is a, the historian Eric Von Konin, who was at ucla he makes this uh, point uh mm-hmm. and so does another legal scholar by the name of william stunt spelled okay. s-t-u-n-t-z these are my citations if people want to oh, okay. look at these works on their own uh and essentially what you get in the south is a hybrid you get you get this old watchman system based on slavery that becomes fused with the modern police system that emerges mm. in new york and so in the South it's a, it's a kind of different policing model than you get in the north because in the South, there was also a kind of informal component to policing
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, meant specifically to regulate uh, black folks to make sure that they stayed on the plantation and they were following the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, so that's the, in the South, policing develops a little differently. Than uh, in the north right. because of slavery, and and then in, in, out here in the west, you know, don't forget this land was taken, uh, you know, originally from Native Americans, uh, but then right. also, uh, Spain had it, and then it becomes part of Mexico. So there's this this rich tradition of uh, Native folks, of uh, Mexicans, right, being mm-hmm. in this territory, and. Remember that that war with the United States ends around 1846. Uh-huh. Oh so yeah. Now you need a police force to make sure that things are under control out here on the West Coast in uh-huh. California in particular so you get a similar kind of system wow. uh in the in the West uh, mm-hmm. as well. And it has an informal component just like it did in the South but here it was meant to keep indigenous folks and Mexicans in their place, right? Right, right, right. And and the law never really applied to them in the same way. So mm-hmm. so actually, there's three varieties. Uh, it turns out that that slavery did play an important role mm-hmm. in uh, in producing uh, our the policing system in the South. Uh-huh. But I also think that people need to note that that New York model is really the origins uh, of modern policing, and we shouldn't lose sight of that either. I know a lot of people talk about slave patrols. That's true. That is factually correct. Right. But what I'm suggesting here is we also need to pay attention to the New York model um, because it's this paramilitary organization, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you don't get this paramilitary organization until you get that model uh, in New York. Uh-huh. And uh, two other things I want to mention uh, about the police system in New York—it's very relevant to today—and I think this is why a lot of people are pushing for defund the police, and you have mm. some people that, that right. are pushing for police abolition. Uh huh. There's a, there's a big debate about what the purpose of policing in New York was about. But okay. uh, again, going back to the work of Eric Monconin, he says that, that police essentially did um, uh, two things. One, uh, they were there to protect property, right? That, that part of their role is to keep the city moving along uh, so that business uh, could continue. Uh, but he also says they were also meant to deal with the needs of the working class and the poor as well. Right. Um, so it wasn't just interest, but it, the big takeaway from his work is that fundamentally people uh, emerged in New York to deal with what was known as the dangerous class. And the wow. dangerous class were working class people, mostly European immigrants Right, um, and their job was to keep these people in place and from disrupting right. and creating disorder. Now, when you say these people, the so,
0: I know there's there's various groups of people. Uh, what people you you're specifically speaking about when you say these people? Yeah,
1: so here am most in, in New York. I'm mostly talking about European immigrants mm-hmm. who were working class, like because the because Irish, read,
0: German, Poland, Polish. Yeah, or what, exactly. What
1: okay. Exactly, but. Um, they were also meant, don't forget that there were fugitive slave laws and, um, you know, in many instances, slaves would, uh, they were runaway slaves and they would go up to, to the North and try to escape. Right. And in some instances, there's another good book I recommend folks take a look at. It's called Slave Patrols. Okay. it's published by Harvard University Press. Mm -hmm. I forget the name of the author, but it's called Slave Patrols. And and in that book. Uh, uh, the author makes the point that in some instances, the police in New York cooperated with Southerners, but in many instances, they didn't. Mm. So it's hard to know what exactly was going on. But here's the main point I wanted to make. Okay. So we can reduce policing really down to two major points. One, controlling, uh, protecting property, and number two, controlling the dangerous class. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that dangerous class grew to include black folks Mm -hmm. who, when slavery ended, go into the cities, Mm -hmm. right? Right. The migration, great migration. Yes. So the conclusion of this is that not only were police designed to protect property, they were originally intended to maintain the class and racial hierarchy in America. All right. Maintain it. Uh, and when you when you get to some of the recent works by uh, uh, Khalid Muhammad, which you and I have discussed, uh-huh. you know, he has a book that I highly recommend folks yes. to look at. It's called The, uh, the Condemnation uh, of Blackness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that book, I mean, that's kind of where he takes off uh, in his work. And basically, you know, with, with one of the things he shows is that in the, for most of the 20th century, that's exactly what the police did. Mm-hmm. They, what their primary function was was to maintain this kind of racial hierarchy in America mm-hmm. and made sure that people didn't go out of uh, what was acceptable so segregation mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. right uh, making sure that black folks uh, uh, out here on the on the west coast Latino folks mm-hmm. didn't go into white neighborhoods right and venture into those neighborhoods if they stayed in their own schools they stayed in their own communities mm-hmm. um, and and I think that's this This is why we're at this moment now, because I think people are asking themselves, is you know given the history right? And the origins of American policing, is this what we want? Do we right. want a system that inherently is designed to protect property and, <laughs> and to maintain the racial and class hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, in america and And I think that's why um, we're at this moment now. In this post George Floyd era, if we, you know, where people are now seriously considering defund the police, you know, which can be viewed as a reform movement, there are some people that don't want to get rid of the police, right? But they want to defund the police, and then you have another uh, strain uh, of thought, mm-hmm. and these are the people that I would refer to as the abolitionists, and mm-hmm. the abolitionists, they want them gone all the way. <laughs> and so i think it's important to when we see people out in the streets to try to figure out where people fall are are some of the activists simply simply pushing for reform when they ask for defund the police mm-hmm. or are we looking at people that want uh, abolition so that's that's kind of my short um Right. I know. know. That's my my very good summary of policing in America. That's that's
0: that's very good, and you broke it down, especially because that was be one of my questions: the difference between North policing and South policing. And you really broke that down, and how, like in the South, uh, policing was about social control of blacks, right, and and enforcing that slave system. In the north, they sometimes participated and helped the slave patrols in the in the south. Sometimes they didn't. But one of the things that they did do in the north with police is protect property and that racial class protection, right? Like, so they had ethnic. It was broke. I I guess it was broken down by ethnics because you had whites, but they had this ethnic breakdown. You had the white Americans, but then you had Irish and Germans and Poland, and I believe there were some other groups that uh, they kind of like held as a second class or pushed into what we would call the ghettos and the, the things that you were talking about didn't have all of that. When did it get to a place to where that, uh, you know, after slavery, you know, we go through all the, you know, the reconstruction and the black code and all those different things. And we get into the twenties, we get into the thirties, the teens into the twenties and the thirties and things like that. When did it get to a place to where that the focus was not, no longer on uh, racial control of a white ethnic groups and it, it basically grew to Blacks and, and Latinos, because Latinos went through a lot also, especially, you know, in, in the 2030s and 40s and so on. So when did it get to the place where they where they were trying to uh, do that social control and policing really harshly on um, Black bodies and brown bodies?
1: Yeah, so, you know, white, even when we think of white, what it means to be white in America, that, that was a gradual progression, mm-hmm. right? There, there, I mean, this is why even when you go to parts of New York or on the East coast, mm-hmm. you still have these neighborhoods broken down, right. By ethnicity. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so whiteness as a concept is evolving. And not everybody was considered white, you know, mm-hmm. Irish for sure. And they, they referred to them as dogs. Mm-hmm. Italians were sort of, were sort of looked down upon, but, but they uh, eventually evolved into modern whiteness. So one of the things um, that's different for, for black folks, and I would argue for Latinos, right, mm-hmm. uh, is that we, we never, re- never really evolved into that category. And that's certainly true mm-hmm. for Black folks. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, again, I'll go back to Khalid Muhammad's uh, work uh, in the condemnation of Blackness. There was a big debate mm-hmm. about what the role of Black folks should be in America. Uh, many people, after the Civil War, uh, didn't want to completely integrate them, right? right? This is why we have the 14th Amendment because uh-huh. after the Civil War's <laughs> over, you had a lot of Southern folks who refused to recognize black folks as citizens. Right. Right. So so the federal government sends in uh the Freedmen's Bureau, which which worked to some extent for for they were only in operational, they weren't operational for more than two years. Uh-huh. Uh, W.E. Du Bois talks about this. Uh uh, in the souls of black folks, but still, uh, you know, the the Freedmen's Bureau leaves the South. Uh, black folks are led; uh, they're they're sort of uh, left on their own to fend for themselves mm-hmm. after the Freedmen's Bureau leaves. The mm-hmm. government's gone. They take the military with them, and so uh, these former slave owners, and people that benefited, try to force black folks back on the plantations, uh-huh. which, uh, something like sharecropping right. systems, right? So blackness uh, was always a question uh, that was up for debate in America, and it continues to be, right? Right. Uh, and so one of the things that Muhammad argues in his book is that uh, blackness could have been associated with different things, but the overriding category mm-hmm. that ends up defining black folks According to Muhammad, and mm-hmm. I think he's right, mm-hmm. uh, is being dangerous. Well,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Being dangerous and being criminal oriented mm-hmm. as a result. And still doing it that today. Became, <laughs> it, and that, that couldn't be more true than today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so as a result, um Muhammad argues this was the primary role of the police. The right. primary role of the police given this identity was to make sure that black folks stayed in these segregated neighborhoods, right? In places like if you're in LA, in South LA, right? right? In West Fresno, in East Oakland. Uh, You know, if you're in Chicago, in South South side of Chicago, uh, you know? So that was the primary purpose of policing. So for black folks, there never was uh, an integration into the, the category, into assimilation. Right. And I would argue it's actually true for Latinos too. I just did uh-huh. another interview recently and we were talking about this. Uh-huh. And and why it's different for Latinos is a lot of people say, well, you know, black folks we they didn't choose to immigrate. They didn't. They came mm-hmm. here because of slavery. And it's the same thing it's to some extent for Latinos. We did not immigrate here. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an old saying that we have This uh, is your country. We didn't cross the border <laughs> the border crossed us. Exactly. Right? <laughs> And so because of that history which is a colonial history mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a lot of people argue that that this is what the police continue to do that police continue to to view black folks and Latinos as colonial subjects and I you know you, know, you might it, it's not unreasonable to think that this is just an extension of, of what we saw in American history 100 years ago right right like I think we're at a we're at a, we're at a defining moment there's an awareness building this kind of hyper policing really takes off uh in the 20th century and this is what jim crow was all about jim crow would not have been possible without the police amen right amen and so uh, one of the things muhammad argues in that book is it's not that ghettos were created and then the police went to patrol and made sure that folks stayed in the ghettos he's implying that that without the police you don't get ghettos you need police to form ghettos to make sure that people stay uh in their place and you know because of this racial hierarchy that we have uh in america
0: wow that's crazy and that's that's what i call social control they're trying that's that's one of the main things because everything's built around the economics and what they're trying to do and so on. So let me ask you another question: Is is you know, because one of the things that we deal with, especially with um, uh, some of the work we're doing today, you know, to end pretext stops, which end up in, in uh, uh, the, the, kind of like what New York was stopping frisk, but here uh, we call it pretext stops, racial profiling, where police will stop you and uh, the old uh, because of a tail light out, but uh, uh, but ultimately they're using that to really investigate you because they see. Uh, like a black person, they see a black person and, you know, like you said, they're criminals, they're dangerous. So they up to something. So let's stop and investigate and see what we can find out, see what we can get. We're going to find a gun, some drugs or something. Right. And so they pull you over and then they want to search you. Right. And but, you know, this has a history, this this stop and frisk has a history it just didn't start in new york it didn't start in, it, it, today or even when uh, the terry stops in the 60s and and the rend um the decision in the 90s you know uh uh, uh with the supreme court decisions to making on that that they can do pretext stops and they can search you in the in the 69 i think it was with the terry stops 69 68 supreme court ruled that they can if they suspicious have reasonable suspicion they can uh search you you know and um and then, Ren or made an order that they can use pretext stops, even if, um, as if some, if, if you have some type of vo- equipment violation or whatever, they can stop you if, if it's a legitimate stop and use that as a pretext to investigate something else. But I, I it didn't even begin in the '60s or in the '90s when these laws, uh, the Supreme Court made these rulings. When do you, when can you say that this stop and frisk began, and who was it used on, and what, what, what was the objective of that?
1: Yeah so some people argue that you know stop and frisk actually can be traced back to uh LAPD mm-hmm. uh going back uh into the 50s uh, 40s um and it, it really emerges there was a, there was a guy by the name of uh, Volmer uh spelled V O L M E R okay and I heard uh, the name he, he was an important person he was from Berkeley uh, but oh, yeah. really tried to professionalize policing. So that's a it. Movement, I, that's where I
0: heard him from. Yes. Uh,
1: in the middle of the 20th century, earlier than the, than the 1950s, going back to the 1950s, 1940s, mm-hmm. to professionalize policing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Volmer and other folks who, who really tried to um, champion this idea of the professionalization of policing was to produce preventative. Policing. So instead of just catching people, right? They wanted to prevent crime. Right. Um, so what they did, what what the the way the tactic sort of emerged in in, in L.A. And, and I think Volmer mm-hmm. kind of helped popularize uh, this tactic as well mm-hmm. uh, as a way to to prevent uh, uh, crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was if there was a, a crime scene or you know somebody uh, there was a crime committed, what the police would do is they would flood the area. Uh, with officers, and then they would just interrogate whoever they could mm-hmm. uh, in that particular area. That was right. kind of the original idea of it, and to just, you know, cast a wide net on a targeted area, mm-hmm. and and usually where those targeted <laughs> areas were, if we're talking about LA, mm-hmm. right, those were mostly in uh, Black and Latino neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You weren't seeing a lot of that in the in the middle class or more affluent parts. Right, because they were there to protect them. L.A. <laughs> right, so so uh, so I think it, the, the to answer your question, this idea of stop and frisk, yeah, it, you know, it, it was popularized in the 1990s by a guy by the name of William Bratton, who became chief of police in New York. Oh City yeah, I've heard of him under uh, uh, under Giuliani.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, his name seems to be coming up a lot lately mm-hmm. when Giuliani was mayor. Uh, of New York, uh, that's where it gets popular. But the origin origins of it go back earlier into the earlier uh, l- the latter third of the of the twentieth uh, century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people suggest that LAPD and 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 this guy that I, re- I referred to. If anybody wants to do more research on the origins of professional policing, take a look at this guy named Volver, yeah. Volmer, Volmer V O L M E R. And, and it was an attempt, again, to, to prevent crime. And mm-hmm. how do you prevent crime? You try to uh, interrogate people uh, before they commit a crime, right? Mm-hmm. And who is and, and more likely to be considered a criminal mm-hmm. because of the way – we earlier we talked about uh, the, the way in which race was constructed for black right. folks. Right, Black folks were the ones that were viewed as being more dangerous, and in L.A., obviously, uh, Latinos
0: uh, as well. Right. And, you know, it's amazing when I hear you talk about that, because you know, when you go, when you look at prohibition, right, and, you know, uh, everybody, you know, uh, uh, was somehow, well, some way benefiting from prohibition and, and, and dealing with um, uh, the liquor, you know, illegal liquor, and so on and so forth, and they could not control it. That's why they passed the, 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 uh, the amendment, made amendment, you know, to make it back legal. But, it was a lot of crime going on back then among, you know, whether it was Italians, Irish, you know, um, uh, 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 other different ethnic white groups and things like that, that were really like killing folks and doing these drive-by shootings and so on. But one of the things that I, uh, uh, the least from what I've heard is is in looking at this, is that the judges and the police kind of like was corrupt, worked along with them, right? You know, when, when it came to that, but it seemed like it shifted, you know, that uh, you're looking at them as gangsters and so on. So now the, when do you think the shift took place as far as from the focus on, um, uh, the gangsters, and of course, we know the FBI and always focus on mafia and different people like that, but we're really beginning to criminalize, you know, the black and brown communities versus on the other end, all these other folks that still continue to commit crimes, but the most dangerous people are black people and criminals, you know, and that's where the focus always seem to be, even though everyone is selling drugs, everyone is committing crimes, everyone's doing robberies and so on, but the focus seemed to be this person, because of the color of your skin, you're the criminal and you're dangerous.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a good point. A lot of people don't realize that that uh, policing was extremely corrupt uh, up until uh, probably the 1950s in America. Um, and, and in most of the cities in New York, uh, in Chicago, these cities that had machine, machine politics, mm-hmm. right? This is where um, you had a, a ward boss, and uh, they would they would get people jobs, and in return, uh, people would vote for these political candidates who were getting them jobs. But a lot of these bosses had a lot of money, and they 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 bribed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the history uh, of most big cities in America. the The odd thing is that in L.A., there were no machines. This is what's really odd about it. Um, and so it it was just it was very corrupt. Uh, so it's not until the 1950s, which is I think is around the time when you really start to see uh, stop and frisk uh, develop even more. Yeah, right. Because that's the time when William Parker, during the <laughs> 1950s, becomes chief of I police of him. in LA. I heard him. Everybody, everybody's heard that name if you're yeah. from LA. Uh, and his main thing was to root out corruption. And what he told his officers is, "You can do whatever you want." But I don't want to see people on the take. Uh, a lot of that's rhetoric. Um, I'm sure there was still a lot of corruption. And he but, didn't he recruit argue, a lot of people
0: from the. Uh, sorry, I just want to ask, interject and ask a question. Did did didn't he hire a lot of uh, folks from the south to come to police in in L.A. during that time? He
1: he did, and he and he hired a lot of people from the military uh, as well. Ah, look at that. He wanted to be very professionalized. Mm-hmm. So th- th- and that kind of you know, reaffirm Militarization, yeah some of those racist ideas. You had people coming from the South, you know, they're mostly mostly white folks, and then you, you hire these people from the military, right? And so you get that kind of military uh, culture uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh.
1: Question. I think there's... Yeah, go ahead. No, go um, ahead. Go ahead. Actually,
0: I think you froze up a little bit. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, what I was going to say is that... Um, I I think you start to see more aggressive policing as the size of the black population grows in urban America, right? Don't forget that it was during the the great Nation after World War II when you get this mass exodus Mm -hmm. of black folks coming into urban America at the same time that police departments... Are becoming professionalized and trying to prevent crime Mm -hmm. and so this is when policing to go back to what i said at the beginning of of our discussion right what is their job what is their primary job their primary job uh one of their primary jobs is to to maintain the the racial and class structure in america
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: so if that if that meant that black folks were coming into cities in large numbers which they were after the the Great Migration, mm-hmm. uh, then then that meant that they had to be more aggressive. So I think uh, the professionalization of policing, but also uh, the influx of black folks coming out of out of the South uh, into big cities, even here in California, right? Right. Uh, L A doesn't become uh, a fully developed, or South L A doesn't become a fully uh, developed ghetto. Uh, until the 1960s. That's what some okay. people would argue. And, and a lot of that were, were these waves of migration out of the South gotcha. into L.A. And then, right, we know what happened mm-hmm. in the 1960s uh, in places like Watts, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see this kind of explosion yeah. uh, of of activity. So a lot of it had to do with the, the, the influx, uh, more black folks in urban America, the professionalization of policing, which I think, which I would argue... Uh, made them even uh, sort of more aggressive mm-hmm. uh, because of their attempt to try to prevent crime. And by preventing crime, that meant using tactics like stop and frisk that were already well in play in, mm-hmm. in L.A. before we even get to New York. And I'm glad you brought that up mm-hmm. because people tend to overgeneralize stop and frisk as <laughs> if it only existed yeah in new york mm-hmm. right there's a, there's a long history of it in in la um in california before uh it became popularized yeah absolutely absolutely
0: so the the other question i have for you is um when we talk about the criminal justice system when was that concept developed you know when you start like you know uh, it's new now I i know like I, I want I know the conversations already were beginning before Michelle Alexander when she wrote her book, you know the New Jim Crow. but you know when she talked about that and and, and of course California when they got sued, um, they had the, the courts ordered them to do reform and uh, so I know you know you know you told me in the 2000s we started hearing about this reform because before it was tough on crime lock everybody up. Now people are talking about criminal justice reform, but this is to my understanding not a new concept, right? And so, when we talk about uh, criminal justice reform, uh, when did that concept uh, come into existence or was started being developed? When 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 did it start?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think you know, uh, it it's been something I think that that has been going on in the Black and Latino community for most of the twentieth century. I, okay. I don't think it's a an entirely new thing. Right? I mean, in the nineteen fifties. Uh, in the 1960s, right? Think about the up, the civil unrest in, in, right. in, in America. Um, and so I think if, if we're talking about criminal justice reform and policing, yeah. uh, the 1960s, I think, were the time where we really start to see these ideas developing. This is where, uh, you know, the Black Panthers developed mm-hmm. the uh, Ten Point Plan uh and so it, this this idea of police abolition i uh, was telling my students it's not a new idea that's right <laughs> it's not a new idea uh people in the 1960s the black panthers were talking about this angela davis has been mm-hmm. talking about this um and there were attempts by communities to police the police right there, there was a program called the cap program i forget what the acronym was but this Black Watts in places uh, in Oakland, and their whole thing was to was to police the police. So you, you see a lot of um, uh, these ideas from the Black Panthers. You see a lot of these ideas, uh, even coming from um, uh, people that were arguing against uh, you know racism. I think there was a term. I'm trying to think of the term for uh, the, not the Third World movement, mm-hmm. right? Was was Trying to push for justice and equality as well, mm-hmm. uh, but there were there were I think in the 1960s uh, when you look at what the civil rights movement was about, uh, when you look at uh, the black what the Black Panthers were doing, I think this is when a lot of the ideas that we're um, confronting now uh, emerge.
0: So, and, and understanding and looking at that, you know, and I, I, I just have, uh, unless you have something else, I I, I just have one more question, <laughs> but it's kind of like a two-fold question, two-part question, is that, you know, when you talk about the police and bringing it to modern day, we understand, look at the history of it and see, and so we can see how we got to where we are now, you know, and especially... Uh, with the uh, the crime bill of, what was that 94 95 somewhere around there Bill Clinton the crime bill and that just escalated things you know to a whole nother level bringing all type of resources for police to hire to train and so on I was talking with a uh, chief of police and he uh, 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 out here and he was telling me when he started force that that's when uh, when the, when that crime bill passed that's when he got on the force and he was told you know hey just get out and arrest many people you can' and put them in prison fill the prisons, fill the prisons. And that was the objective because there's money to build prisons, money for police, money for them to get trained, and so on. So, when we talk about criminal justice reform, how do, uh, um, can, the first question is, first part of the question is, can the police fix themselves, right? Because most of the time, they always want to be at the table or guide the Or They say they let the, the community guide it, but they still like there, they always use things like, you know, like uh, I'm just using this as example. The CRB, uh, uh Citizens Review Board, or Community Review Boards. These review boards. They say, oh, that should be people with law enforcement background, right? Right? Because they always feel like they're the ones, you know, that have the expertise to do what needs to be done, whether it's investigation, whether it's uh, fixing the system. So the question part, first part of the question is, can the police fix themselves? Right? Can they fix themselves? And then the second part of the question is, is that what I see standing in the way of criminal justice reform, of reforming police, I should say, is these police unions. And and how did they become so powerful, you know? And, and, and at one time, police, from what I've heard, is that they were used to bust up the unions, right? <laughs> and now they have a union. <laughs> what do you think about that? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Uh, in terms of can the police police themselves? I I think the answer to that one's pretty clear that, uh, what most people are really upset about, you know, why we're in this moment now, uh, since the death of, uh, George Floyd Mm -hmm. is accountability. Right. 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 And, and the accountability for misconduct, um, is a problem. Right. It's a problem because the law, uh, Allows um, police officers to use force in a way that most of the time is going to be justified. And it's the right. law. Right. Right. Uh, and they understand that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they have this thing called qualified immunity, uh, mm. which basically gives uh, the police the right to use force if they feel that their life is threatened. Uh-huh. And if it's something that is typically done that most officers use. In the, If force is used typically in those kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. So uh, y- you need public input. Um, there's no way that the police are going to. They have shown us. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've been talking about reform. People have been asking for um, these issues to be resolved. And history has taught us that the police are not able to police themselves. (laughs) And
0: what about these unions? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: And they're funded by the public. They're funded by the public. So we should have, the public should have more input in determining what happens, right? And, and, And the way the system is developed uh, and it's not a, it's not an accident. By the right. Way. Right. Uh, the, the, the re, there's a great book by a guy by the name of so mm-hmm. F-O-G-E-L-S-O-N. It's called Big City Police. OK. And basically what he argues in that book is that because cities were so worried about the corruption from mas- the machines that I described earlier, these European <sighs> ethnics. Right. Like the Irish and the Italians mm-hmm. who were working class people because Police departments were so corrupt; they wanted to make sure that the public had very little influence on the police.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: they created this bureaucracy, basically that was
2: impenetrable
1: to the public, and that the so that the public would have very little influence uh, because of this fear right. that the, they were going to be controlled. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have another problem, and that is. You know now there aren't enough outlets and ways to have meaningful participation uh, with the police. Right. So uh, I would argue that uh, because of the accountability issue and because of the of the few channels that are open to the public that, that really have disciplinary power, mm-hmm. um, that uh, there's no way that the police can can. Uh, police themselves,
0: right, and and these unions, um, how did they become so powerful? You know, uh, is it their lobbying ability, and when did they start first start forming these unions? Because at one time, police was used to bust up unions,
1: <laughs> right. So, so going back to what I had mentioned earlier, right. So, in beginning in the nineteen fifties and sixties, when police become more professional. professional, okay, uh, this is the time when unions. Start to take off in the 1960s. And little by little, um, as the city bureaucracies have increased, um, police departments, especially in places like California, Mm -hmm. have found ways to grow the power of their union, especially the more they felt like they're under attack. The more that the police departments feel they're under attack the more they they feel like they, they needed to strategize. So I'd say probably since the 1960s wow, uh, that, that they've done this. And 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 there's at least, uh, there's multiple ways in which they're able to grow, they were able to grow and how they're able to influence people. One of the ways that, that they're able to influence what happens is through their, uh, from the dues that they get from their members, they were able to contribute to, elected people who are running for, for office elected uh-huh. officials. So uh, if you want to win, uh, you know, if you're running for city council or you're running for any municipal position, getting that police endorsement is important for two reasons. One, it shows <laughs> you're not soft on crime, mm-hmm. right? Cause the police are backing you. Mm-hmm. Number two, you're going to get that money for your campaign. So, those two things, I think, end up being a very powerful force for um, people running for positions like city council, but they can also be very influential uh, for races like the district attorney. Yeah. Who is usually the one right. uh, responsible for examining police misconduct. Right, 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 right. So give you an example of how this works in Sacramento, there were a lot of community activists who were very upset mm-hmm. because uh, the DA that was reviewing uh, the police-involved killing of Stefan Clark, that right, high-profile police-involved ki- uh, killing, it turns out that the DA had received uh, a significant amount of money from the police department, yes. the same police department that uh, she's investigating, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people thought, well, that's a conflict of interest. Because um, she's taken all this money from the police department. How, how can we expect her to be care, uh, yeah. fair or impartial? Uh, so that is, I think that's the first thing uh, that makes the unions powerful. The LA Times ran a really good article, I think, back in September on this issue. Uh, and, and they wrote a, actually a, a more recent one. And they said a lot of the police reform <clears throat> bills – Mm-hmm. that are being proposed have been uh, essentially stopped in their tracks because of the union the police union in california hmm. and uh which i thought is really interesting kind of speaks to your point and and in this article they highlighted a couple of points one of them uh was the contracts that union members get so if you make these if, if people if the if the state of california was to enact or pass some of the bills uh Calling for account- police accountability, right? Um, or, or even defunding the police, which uh-huh. is what people are asking for, that would be very problematic. And it's problematic because these officers and these departments have written into their contracts they will be paid X amount of money, right, for wow. X n- number of years. Mm-hmm. So, how are you going to defund the police when? local government has already agreed to these police contracts that are guaranteed in writing. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a second factor, uh, that, that would affect, uh, the fund of police. And then I think the third factor, uh, that's a problem, uh, is the, uh, police bill of rights, uh, I don't know all the details of the police bill of rights but you know, right. one of the things it says is that they you know, there, there was a lot of restrictions in terms of how they can be investigated for police misconduct. Right. Which which also puts limits. So so essentially what what these unions have done is they found a way to uh to influence local politics and this is why looking at that New York model is so important because the New York model of policing is based on <laughs> Municipal city government. We're talking about municipal budgets here and municipal elected officials. Hmm. What happened? Hold on.
0: Look like I lost him. Did I lose you? Hold on. I look like I lost Dr. Martinez. There you are. Hey, I lost you. I think I lost you for a minute there. I should have put my, I think somebody's trying to call me and uh, it, it it blocked, it blinked you out. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) But uh, say what you were saying.
1: Yeah. So, so I was talking about the second thing about the contracts um, and how those union contracts basically guarantee a certain amount of money. uh, And those contracts also uh, can protect officers from, uh, being investigated uh, as well, so uh, I think what a lot of what what we're finding here in California, uh, and I would encourage everyone to look at the the LA Times article. I think the title of it is uh, I can actually give you the title of it here. It's um, police reform advocates scrutinize police unions, calling them obstacles to reform. And this article came out uh, fairly recent. But it really shows uh, the power of police unions and how they are probably one of the currently one of the biggest obstacles to any serious reform. Right. So. So, you know, and and just
0: some final thoughts here, you know, from you uh, in regards to before we close out, uh, you know, with all the um, talking about reforming the police, accountability and things like that. I think that, you know, there there's different aspects of when you talk about dealing with policing, you know, um, and everybody is like looking at it from one lens. And let me give an example. There are some people just thinking like, you know, when, with the mayor's race, you know, Barbara Bree and Todd and Gloria, they both talk about, oh, well, I support the CRB, you know, the the new the, the uh, Measure B. I support that, right? And they think that that's reform, right? And and then Barbara Bree at, oh, community-oriented policing. But they're they're forgetting about on the front, end you know, all what we just talked about, what police was actually is there for. Right. And and how uh, they use the police to oppress, you know, communities of color, especially black and brown. Right. And uh, in, in what we deal with. And and we know that that has been the target all the time criminalization of the community of a race of group of people and then you oppress them you know and then you know when you go to jail and go to prison things like that now you got a record it makes it more difficult to rebuild your life you know after you get out and so it's it's that social control which michelle alexander talked about so my thing is is that we have to we have to have a we have to look at it from a a not just one lens but a comprehensible whole we have to like uh, yes, we need CRB accountability. Yes, we need transparency. Yes, we need police, compassion policing in the community, but also they have to change the culture within policing and in what we talking about the stop and frizz and and that that first they are the first responders to mass incarceration. Right. So uh, so we got to get in front of that. What are your thoughts on that? And how can we what, what should we be addressing?
1: Yeah, I'm going to come back to this point of accountability, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of power does the CRB really have? Um, are they are they able to to um, uh, somehow influence the disciplinary action uh, of officers? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and as you know, uh, the past has shown us that <laughs> lots of these organizations are are very weak uh, in terms of the power that they're given, uh, especially right. if, if they're headed up. By the city that's right uh and then in terms of community oriented policing and i've been doing a lot of research on this mm-hmm. it's one of the good things about teaching on this subject <laughs> uh, i know you teach on all, all the time
2: <laughs> uh, you know it
1: turns out that there's very little evidence that community policing works thank you thank you uh, doctor <laughs> and, and, and part of the problem uh was that uh you know, you have you have uh, all these police departments uh, enacting what they call community policing, and nobody really knows a what community means. Right. And b, even though uh, the federal government gives these grants out for these, uh, I guess the name of the program that the federal government has mm-hmm. is called it's cops mm-hmm. community oriented policing strategies or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the the federal government has never identified a standard model. Wow, has been evaluated and tested. It works. So when Look at that use that term, community-oriented <laughs> policing means a thousand different things to a thousand different people, and it turns out there's very little evidence uh, that that these programs work. Look at uh, that. And then just one one other thought. I mean, I could really go off on this, topic, mm-hmm. but um, community-oriented. Poli- let's suppose we did have a a, a form of community policing that that does work. Uh-huh. Right? Uh huh. Uh. Uh, You know, let's just uh, imagine that. Right. Uh, The problem is that the police department is a complex bureaucracy. Right. And it has all these different units. It's got the gang enforcement team. It's got the crime suppression unit. Mm -hmm. Right. It's got regular patrol. Mm -hmm. And so while this community policing program maybe is able to do some good, that's not the only unit that residents come into contact with. right? They come into contact with that gang suppression team or with that uh, that other uh, suppression-oriented team or they got to deal with probation. So one unit ends up being just one small piece of the police bureaucracy and, and one small piece of, 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 of a policing agency or unit that people are going to come into contact. That's not going to define their relationship. That's right it's going to be that gang suppression team, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be that regular patrol guy that they have interactions with. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that, that's very problematic. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of people are looking to community policing as a panacea and, uh, the evidence just isn't there.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Worse. Thank you. So, so, and, and, and so what do you think we need to do you know, as far as if we're talking about reforming police and to end, you know, these these hostile contacts where people are being shot and killed and arrested. See, I, I like it. there uh, 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 Minister Muhammad Mas eight, You know, um, one thing he said to me several years ago is that, you know, for every black person that gets killed, there are thousands that's being locked up. Right. And we tend to forget that we tend to forget how the, the, many families are being destroyed through the mass incarceration. And of course, these contacts, which create trauma, that creates uh, a lot of folks, a lot of forces used on them, use of force is used on them. Uh, um, and, and sometimes, you know, people die, right, get killed. And and overwhelmingly, when it comes to blacks being killed on by police and things like that, how do we fix that? How do we address that and change that?
1: Well, Just two two thoughts come to mind. One, this is why I think your work, the kind of work you were doing before with CAST is so important. Mm. You have to start. I'm back with CAST, so. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I wasn't sure whether to mention it. (laughs) But um, I I think, you know, there are lots of alternatives to the police and organizations like CAST, organizations like um, Advanced Peace, yeah, uh, you had the opportunity to meet one of the mm-hmm. leaders. You and I uh, um, sat down with with that uh, that brother for a couple of hours, and we talked about his work. Their program has been evaluated, and it and it's been shown to work. Yeah, yeah. And, and this isn't this isn't uh, you know the prevention. This is this is gun violence intervention. Exactly, right. The kind of work that you do and right. that, that they're doing. So so it turns out there's a whole host of neighborhood community based alternatives, nonprofits. Uh, for example, have played a huge role in this. Mm-hmm. And so I think investing more in them
2: mm-hmm.
1: would be uh, a viable alternative. And they work. They've Amen. been evaluated. Yep. It's not just, and it's, people don't know what to do. That's right. a concrete policy uh, recommendation uh, that I'm providing that works mm-hmm. and can put a dent in serious violent crime like gun violence. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, we have another problem now mm-hmm. we're entering a, another period uh, of policing that I think is is very troubling, and okay. I didn't see this until I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with uh, with one of, some of the gang enforcement teams up up north in Sacramento. Uh huh. You, you have a huge number of black and brown men that are now coming out of jail. We ha- now we're dealing with the effects of deincarceration. Right. Now, now, so it's not just the ones going to jail, and when they come back,
2: mm-hmm.
1: when our people are coming back, now, now you're on parole, you're maybe a fourth waiver, and uh, if you thought stop and frisk was a problem, mm-hmm. right, when you have, when you don't have your Fourth Amendment right, mm-hmm. and an officer can pull you over for just looking at them when you're out on the streets, right, right, you're gonna have, you're gonna, you're gonna continue to be surveilled uh, even though you're not in jail and so are your family members and And because there are so many people coming out of jail now uh, and then you have these uh, uh, parole and probation surveillance mm-hmm. uh, or organizations, right officials. Mm-hmm. they're now working increasingly with law enforcement and they're surveilling, patrolling, pulling people over, this is beyond stop and frisk. Exactly, right? exactly. And and the scary thing is, and this is what I tell people, it's legal. Yep. It's legal yep. because morally it doesn't feel right. It's wrong, right? Right. But technically it's legal because you have all these young men uh, coming out and they're on parole and they have no rights at all. Man. They are subject to whatever the officer feels like he wants to do.
0: Right. Right. That's yeah.
1: the, that's the, for me. That's the big problem we're confronting now. So we're going to have to Absolutely. find a way uh, to start addressing the way in which uh, black and brown men are being policed uh, during their post-release time back into the community, uh, because that's that's what the state and federal government want us to do now. A, They can't afford to keep locking people over. Right. B, it sounds <clears throat> Sounds like they're being progressive. We're gonna let you people go. Uh and then when and then when they come back to the community, they're policed uh, like we haven't seen before. And
0: then not only that, but they are when when uh when they get folks to make plea deals, right? To plead to a felony, we'll let you go right now. You know, uh, they might have been in jail for a couple of months or whatever, going to court. We we'll, you know, we we'll let you go, you know, but plead to a felony. And so then they're on that system too. So one of the things that we have, and I'll close with this, if unless unless you have some final words. Um, is that we have an ordinance we're trying to get passed with the city of San Diego called PROTECT, Preventing Over-Policing Through Equitable Community Treatment, right? And that deals with black, brown, it deals with um, uh, mentally disabled folks, and it deals with LGBTQ community because all these groups are targeted by the police. And so what we're trying to do is uh uh in that so what protect does is number one is that you can't stop someone unless you have probable cause to stop a person right you can't use a pretext stop lies how we just investigate no they have to be a probable cause like there was a robbery and the guy was in a, this kind of car and it was a person that had a beanie anywhere and it fit that description so that's a probable cause to pull that person over or stop that person right we know they lie a lot of times even when it comes to probable cause but that's number one and then number two is is that with, with having probable cause, this includes the fourth waivers, right? People on parole and probation so that what we're saying is is even people that are fourth waivers, you shouldn't be pulling them over unless there's a probable cause, there's a reason to do it. Not just, because, oh, I see Dustin does, he's on probation, let's stop him, right? Because that's what they do. No, we want to end that. And we also what we also want to end is that just because... You see somebody that may be documented as a gang member. That's not probable cause just because you have him documented, which may, you know, uh, be uh, falsely documented or whatever. Because we know how the Cal gang database is. And then so and then not only that, but no more consent searches. Right. You need uh, uh, pro you, you need uh, probable cause to search also, not just to stop. But probable cause to search also, and so what? What we believe in in implementing this, and then also finding the police department if they violate this this ordinance, right? Whether it's a thousand dollars, whatever we have to do to the individual that you know was stopped, you wasted his time and her time or what have you. People lose their jobs sometimes because they're always being stopped by the police, being late to work, or or having handcuffs put on them, and the whole shebang. So we want to end that, and I believe that you know that uh that'll deal with that on the front end. Of at least from the perspective of email, (laughs) at least from the perspective of dealing with this this stop and frisk and how they police the community, treat the police, and things, and then it also, I believe, will limit you know how. Uh, they police the community from the perspective. how they police, like you say, the white class, right? You know, because they use drugs just as much as, you know, black and brown folks use drugs, but yet black people are overwhelmingly arrested for drugs. So I I really, you know, I I think that, you know, ordinances like that, but when you bring that to the mayors, both of them, the the candidates for mayors, they don't want to touch it with a 10-feet pole, right? They they say, oh, well, we support CRB. Oh, well, you know, we're going to demilitarize this and all. Oh, those things sound good, but it's really not like what you just brought up. If the data doesn't support what they talk about, in the sense of you're going to bring true reform and make an impact in the community, where community where you build trust, where people uh, trust you, where they say, you know, yes, we have a a um, what, how do they they term it? we have a, a lovely, I'll just say a lovely relationship with the police, right? You, When black and brown folks say that, yeah, I trust them, just. Uh, they trust them just as much as white people trust them and believe in them just as much as white people believe in them, then you made uh, progress. And you're not gonna make progress by simply some of the things that they're talking about because a lot of that stuff is on the back end. And even when you talk about community-oriented policing, there's no data uh, really to support like what really works in that, right? So they they use that and throw that term out there. And there are some cities where that have changed, but I think when the, when they change to use community policing, they change the culture too, right? They stop criminalizing the community and stop treating folks as dangerous and as criminals, but they treat them with decency and respect and so on, and implementing that procedural justice. So that was my final thoughts on it. If you have any final thoughts before we close out, you're free to do it at this time.
2: <laughs> no,
1: I just want to thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and and uh, discuss
0: these issues yeah and thank you thank you for being on the show with us and i really appreciate it anytime i call on you for help uh whether it's a radio show or or podcast or or a lot of time i just call you to pick your brain you're always there you always give me resources send me a lot of information to read and books to read and things like that and so on so i really appreciate it because it's always um important I was listening to you when you was talking about uh, advanced peace and talking about and I, I, and I thank you for letting me meet with the brother and then I was able to call him and talk with him and get some other information because some things I want to implement in San Diego from what they're doing because it worked right and and I really appreciate those type of connections and and the kind of work we do but even in that work like we did with Cass you know uh what your role is very important also in the research the data and all of that so uh, appreciate everything you you do And always, you know, look forward to working together in the future in the things that we do and so on. I want you to hold on. We're going to stop. Um, uh, We thank everybody for being on our podcast, uh, Shafat Outreach Podcast, Slow Motion with Bishop Bowser. And this is the end of episode 13. And we'll see you on episode. You'll hear from us on episode 14. Uh, God bless you.